Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just coming right up to four o'clock and you're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR with Joan Bartlett. Today, comments on the so-called gas attack in Syria by Joan Coxage. Illegal settlements in the West Bank with Kim Bullimore. Oceana Gold, they've got a mine in the Philippines which has been causing lots of problems. I'll be speaking with Sean Cleary from the Edmund Rice Centre. Conference re-1916-17 conscription referendums with Michael Hamill Green, the cancellation of the visa for the Palestinian human rights defender, which you heard in that cart, well, unfortunately, Basim can't get a visa. I'm speaking with Bishop George Browning. And also on the so-called gas attacks in Syria, Dr Tim Anderson. But first, let's have it for Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when the quest for world peace took a giant step forward to coin a cliché as U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the paw, admitted achieving peace in evil, evil Syria was now my responsibility. Didn't explain why, but... That's, that would be stating the obvious. The big supremo of the US of the world is responsible for peace throughout the world, throughout his, always be to him, his empire. And the world reflects what a huge success that has been. And the secretary of um, US world state, Rex Killam's son, said the US of may have to move into evil, evil Syria, presumably over and above the bombing raids it does now and the missiles it fired off this week because the Syrian government has no respect for civilians and the US of has such a pristine record of respect for civilians. It never hurts even one. Although it has created a fair bit of collateral damage all over the world, really, but move in and do a quick mop-up, quick regime change, and no doubt that can be done. Mission accomplished. Iraq and Afghanistan, prime examples of the US of trained killing for peace and mopping up quickly. Why, they could be out of Afghanistan and Iraq any time now, just 16 years later. Although when the US of assures us through its misnomered intelligence that evil, evil Syria, for instance, has done terrible, terrible things, when Donald all but cries at the deaths of little babies, beautiful little babies, horrible, horrible, for some reason my mind runs to that infamous vision of the Vietnamese girl running through the streets alight with napalm and I had an idea the US of had something to do with that but apparently not because they would do nothing to hurt dear little children and my mind also runs to that other girl in the Iraqi hospital babies thrown on the ground and later turned out she was part of a US of misinformation set up conspiracy but only of course for valid peaceful reasons in order to train to kill regime change and mop up quickly in the quest for world peace and evil evil Syria may be doing the terrible things because terrible things are happening but hard as it is to believe I'm not prepared to take the US of's word for it 
And Rex says the US may have to invade North Korea simultaneously. See, Donald is also responsible for peace there. And North Korea, home of the succession of great and beloved leaders, keeps complaining just because the US carries out war games on its border. Steps are underway. Rex spoke as a man of peace. As I said to the president and the presidents before him, what's good for ExxonMobil is good for the world. Uh, uh, don't you mean what's good for the US of? Isn't that what I said? And all lovers of peace must go to sleep every night content that no matter where the country, no matter where the threat, the US of has trained killer killer ships brimming with peaceful kill, kill, kill merchants of death merchandise somewhere out there nearby all over the world. It's so comforting. And the US of having spoken, our very own big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull echoed the peace-loving sentiments. The world must act on evil, evil Syria. He displayed our true independence, the world naturally being the US of the world, with true blue Aussie bouncing along on its coattails. And that uncontrollable socialist would-be big supremo little Billy Shorten ambition in turn echoed Malcolm's echoing of Donald and Rex's peace-loving sentiments and Donald and Rex and Malcolm and little Billy and the minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie bash up the workers. Well, all of the caring business class and socialist parties assured us the US of missile strikes had been restrained, proportionate and appropriate, leaving us to ponder their definition of unrestrained and disproportionate. Week that was warning if you are Syrian. For all of the above to care about you, to practice appropriate proportionate restraint in your interests, you must remain in Syria. Appropriate for those fleeing the bombs, the missiles, the train killing the slaughter is concentration camps. In True Blue Aussie's case, on idyllic Pacific holiday islands, guarded by worsened security, which receives trillions from the public purse to ensure restraint, as in restrained, any wonder we have to slash basic services when these inconsiderate Syrians and other so-called refugees, asylum seekers, put these selfish pressures on the public purse. And all these people, thousands of them, marched on Sunday demanding the government bring these no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal, illegal boat people to live here just like us. Speakers talked of the misery, the torture of concentration camps with no end in sight and didn't the Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats? Peter Duffer put them in their place, which certainly wasn't blocking the streets on a miserable Sunday afternoon. The protesters were adding to the torture. Pete showed he cared. How dare these long-haired, commie, greenie, wooden working in iron lots, many pro the dear baby Jesus and the prophet, make poor refugees suffer. Our ex minister conceding by adding to, adding to, although I'm sure he didn't realise it because I'm not sure he realises too much at all they, that they are tortured and what a pity those watching the commercial telly newses and reading our daily print media would have missed Pete's wise logic because the mainstream media had so much on its plate it just couldn't squeeze in thousands marching in support of people we must not care about.
stay home under the bombs and we will send in even more bombs to protect you. On storms and wind and nothing to do with climate change, I've complained time and again. The subjects of this segment keep trying to do me out of a job, if this could be called a job, as their comments seem so satirical, satire can't compete. This week, former Productivity Profits Con Mission Supremo Gary Banks. Real name, and again, how can we satirise that in a devotee of the greatest little economic order of them all? Banks, addressing Infrastructure Profits Partnership True Blue Aussie attacked governments, I think mostly state socialist governments like South True Blue Aussie, for creating the energy crisis, soaring energy prices by this renewable energy nonsense. And here's the satire can't compete line. The South True Blue Aussie Supremo blaming the private sector for soaring energy costs, direct quote, took the wind out of my sails. <laughs> and only the most naive would suggest the private sector taking over from government has been anything but a roaring success. The roaring 40s, putting wind back into Gary's sails and into the bank's bank account. Speaking of banks, stroke of bad luck for borrowers last week when the banks were forced to jake up interest rates. Oh, I hear you say, didn't realise the Reserve Bank had increased the rate. Well, well, no, it didn't. The US of Fed put up interest rates in the US of, and our banks instantly explained why this meant they had no choice but. As logical an explanation as when they explain why they can't reduce interest rates when the Reserve Bank lowers them. Just another example showing how difficult it is for we mere common folk to comprehend the greatest little economic order of them all. Hope this isn't true, because the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin is a great source of vital information for this segment, as I'm sure you know, listener, but its latest daily attack on the Dan pejorative socialist government, elected because we got it so wrong, for which Lord Rupert is not prepared to forgive us, latest attack is on this Respectful Relationship Schools program, the Wapping Sin concerned fairy tales may be banned, or at best or worse, we guess, Gender stereotypes questioned. It's a worry, the banning fairy tales bit, because they'd have to ban the whopping sin. Its concern is clearly self-preservation. And top marks for a brilliant headline, Dunce Upon a Time. Get it? <laughs> clever, clever. Although Dan the Dunce would have been alliterative. Bit surprised, though, we haven't seen a line in the whopping scene or the Lord Rupert media generally about the sacking of former Socialist Party Supremo Mark lay into them for laying into them. OK, everything he said was despicable, sexist, homophobic, you name it. We wouldn't agree with a word, but... Lord Rupert and his team of hacks are the biggest supporters of our innate right to offend, insult and humiliate, our right to free speech. And did Mark offend, insult and humiliate? They should have been cheering him. Whatever we think of what he said, he was exercising his right to offend, insult and humiliate, at which he's an expert. Even the usual suspect commonness who attacks the evil left for opposing free speech, for blocking speakers whose views the usual suspect hack so admires hasn't written a word defending poor Mark. Can't understand it. After all, the usual suspect has his own program on the Lord Rupert channel that sacked poor Mark. Oh, oh maybe that explains it. Perhaps Lord Rupert's defence of free speech doesn't apply to 
Lord Rupert. Although the usual suspect hack wouldn't let that influence him, would he? Finally, I referred to unconscious satire doing us out of, but conscious satire suffered a tragic loss with the sudden death of John Clark, a wonderful comedian whose talent was based on a brilliant mind, a sad, sad loss. Good afternoon. And thanks to Mr Kevin Healy for another week that was, and don't forget to tune in on Wednesday morning, that's tomorrow morning, 9am for City Limits. On the line now is former politician and current social activist, Joan Coxidge. Where can you start in a situation like this? You have to start at the beginning, and God knows what the beginning is, but anyhow, we'll start from last week when we were told that Assad had dropped sarin gas weapons on civilians and the world's media went into a frenzy and ran with the story without checking the facts or who put out the story. When all the information about the attack came from sources where no Western reporters or independent investigators were allowed in. Complete lie. And it came from two decidedly dodgy outfits, which we hear from from time to time. One is the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights and the White Helmets, and both quite openly back al-Qaeda. Now, if we can find out how dodgy they are, why can't the Western media also do the checking? But many uh, are now coming out and seeing the video that was released as a fake. It's just too perfect to be real. Basically, it was constructed for public uh, consumption, especially for Trump, to make him look strong and presidential. That's quite a stretch, I'd have to say. But the same mob in Washington, this sort of establishment mob who had denounced Trump as mentally unstable and, and an unprecedented threat to democracy, which is true, are now standing and applauding him as he bombs Syria based on a complete lie and in violation of international law, which was codified in the United Nations Charter in a treaty that the US itself has signed. And it states quite categorically that the supreme war crime is for a country to attack another when it poses no threat to the attacker. So you could say that he's just another president joining a long list of war criminals who have made the US the world's leading rogue nation. Only a few days earlier, he declared Syria off the table, that his purpose is defeating terrorism, when it's quite clear from what's happened that the whole Trump White House are increasingly being dominated by the neocons who want war with Russia, and that's a real worry. And one who saw through the scam is quite notable people. One was a former Defence Intelligence Agency, Colonel Patrick Glenn, and he, like many others, have cited all the earlier scams, you know, the Gulf of Tonkin lie that was justified to, uh, or rather used to justify its war in Vietnam. Babies were tossed out of incubators and weapons of mass destruction for Gulf Wars 1 and 2. We've seen how that Iraq war has spread and spread and caused absolute chaos and misery throughout the Middle East. But getting back to the video, one of the treating doctors who appeared in it had been arrested for kidnapping two Western journalists and was considered a committed jihadist before being struck off the Medical Council in 2016. I think he'd been a doctor in London. And the male victims in the video were clean-shaven, 
does make sense because they were living in Al-Qaeda land and you had to have beards in Al-Qaeda land. And there were even two blonde Syrian kids shown, so very strange. But the US was fully briefed on the fact that there was a target in Idlib, and I find it hard to pronounce it and I apologise, that the Russians believed was a weapons explosives depot for Islamic rebels. Now, the Syrian Air Force hit the target with conventional weapons, expecting to see a secondary explosion. Instead, smoke billowed out, and it turned out that it was used to store chemicals, organic phosphates and chlorine, not sarin, but still deadly. There was a strong wind blowing, and the cloud was driven to a nearby village where people died, tragically. Now, the first to respond handled the victims without gloves. If it had been sarin, they would have died. In any case, the whole situation makes, so, makes no sense whatsoever from the Syrian government point of view because the forces are winning on the ground war and they are in the ascendancy using much more effective conventional uh, tactics and weapons. It's also under intense scrutiny by the entire world and the idea of using chemical weapons would be a strategic, tactical, political and military blunder serving no purpose whatsoever. But here we are today where US war fever waits for absolutely nothing. Once the war frenzy is unleashed, reasoning goes straight out the window and that Syria deliberately used chemical weapons to bomb civilians became absolute truth within less than 24 hours. And so as somebody has said, I think it's a famous saying, while a lie travels halfway around the world, the truth, truth is still putting on its shoes. Now, the CIA has spent more than a billion dollars a year arming anti-Assad rebels for years. And the U.S. began bombing Syria in 2014, the seventh Muslim country bombed by Obama, and it, it's, ne it's never stopped. It's quite blatant now, obviously. Instead of allegedly targeting terrorist sites of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, it targets the Syrian government. Talk about the Syrian Human Rights Observatory. Oh, they're a shocking lot. And it's, 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 I, I did a bit of a look at the background of that, and they... They operate, it was a one-man office operating in some obscure suburb in London. And yet, this dodgy outfit is quoted all the time by the Western media, which is where it gets most of the, uh, it's, it seems to get most of its information from when it goes on the air. You know, it's just so obviously dodgy. And it's clearly... God knows what its connections are, probably CIA and MI6, and, but certainly they're very pro-ISIS, but they're still used as if they're a neutral source. There is a concern that the Australian government will follow the US into Syria, but we have to acknowledge that the Australian government, the Australian Air Force, is already there. It's already there, and of course that's a, a long history of whatever America does and wants us to do, we do, without question. And that is what's so depressing and demeaning in the way we grovel behind the US war machine when it leads us into these terrible war situations. You'd think we'd learn something, but no, away we go yet again. 
But the destruction of the Middle East is just appalling, Joan. Absolutely. It's just a misery that's causing, but then behind it all, we're seeing Cold War to really asserting itself. And that, that, I think, is the big worry, and that is where it leads from, from here. Because behind, as we know, you know, we've got the US versus Russia and Iran, and they want to eliminate both. And is this the excuse that the neocons, the extreme right-wing war hawks in Washington, are wanting? Well, those are the people that he chose, wasn't it, Trump? Indeed. But he's a, a moron. But you see, the trouble is morons like him can get led by others far more devious. And that's what we're seeing happening. You know, he makes all these contradictory statements and contradictory postures. But when it all boils down, it's the other extreme right-wing mob that are calling the shots, literally. And now we need another anti-war movement, really, don't we? But we the trouble do. is... We do. And, I mean, that's the thing that's worrying, the passivity that's around here. You know, people have accepted it as fact. And the media have a hell of a lot to answer for because they started to, you know, publish some of the alternative information that's out there. People might start to query and question. There's a lot more questioning going on in other parts of the world. Even in America now, there are quite strong anti-war protests taking place. I don't know about Europe, but I'm sure they will take what well, they will happen because they are much more cynical about the United States than Australians seem to be. But Australians are so easily distracted. You know, you've got football on, you've got this and that on. They're more interested in that, so we can make a headline out of something that's not terribly important and ignore what's going on under our feet. You know, the prospect of war has never been closer. Living in perilous times, without a doubt. We're talking about two nuclear-armed nations. We've got Israel, the wild card in the pack, also nuclear-armed. No one knows what Saudi Arabia's up to. They're up to no good, and, of course, that's one of the staunch allies of the United States, and by, by default, us, uh, and they're the ones that they have supported for a long time. They sell a hell of a lot of weaponry to Saudi Arabia and to Israel, of course. And so it, it's, a, it's a, when you look at the armaments that are, you know, thrashing around in that region, it, it is something that's terrifying to witness, frankly. Because there were so many people caught up, and you look at the plight of the Palestinians in all of this, and they've been hounded from one Middle East country to another, and it's the secular countries that seem to be under the hammer most, like Iraq, Libya, Syria, and they're the ones that were housing Palestinians. So they've had to move from one haven to another where, where they've got no, nowhere to go virtually. And it's also, as a sideline, it's interesting to note that a Palestinian activist was denied a visa to enter Australia only a few days ago. So once again, we're demonstrating our total one-handed attitude to global affairs. And I'm afraid the Labor Party's not much better. It's not. It's not at all. I haven't heard them say anything about the latest... Uh, situation in Syria, if, if they've said anything, I've missed it. they probably say, me, me. I think so. They're frightened to put a toe in a different direction. They're gutless wonders, unfortunately, and that's sad. 
It That's is. sad for all of us because it means we have no choice, no choice at all. So you're picking for the least worst party and they inevitably disappoint when they get into office. She got a letter in the age on Saturday. Which oh, you did? Good. Okay. Yeah, it surprised I'm, me. I might finish, Joan, by asking you to say a few words about John Clark. Oh, Sadly missed. I really like that man. I, I think he was an admirable person. He got straight to the point. He was just a very nice human being. And we stopped everything to listen to Clark and Dorr five to seven every Thursday evening. And they were absent actually over the Christmas period and we really missed them. A life well lived, but much, much too short. So all the condolences to... To Brian Dorr and especially to John Clark's family. Thanks, thanks, Joan. And that was Joan Coxedge, former AOP politician and lifelong activist for all the good things that we all appreciate. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR 8:55 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. On the program last week, activist Kim Bullimore spoke about the UN report identifying Israel with apartheid and other issues. But I didn't have quite time to play her segment looking at settlements. Finally, Kim, new settlements in the West Bank, the first in 20 years. Can you explain the settlement issue? Because there are settlements being built all the time, yet you're saying this, this is the first one in 20 years. What's the story? Hopefully your listeners know that you know under international law, under the Geneva Convention in particular, it's illegal for an occupying force to transfer its population into territory that is uh, seized and occupied. So Israel, like Australia and other countries, are uh, signatories to the Geneva Convention and, and a range of other uh, international laws which prevent this. Of course, Israel has defied that since 1967 and has continued to pour population into the occupied territories, building uh, colonies and settlements which are illegal under international law. Obviously, in the last sort of 20 years or so, there has been a so-called freeze, and I wouldn't really call it a freeze, but let's go with that terminology for the moment, a freeze on settlement building, supposedly because of the Oslo Accords and the, the so-called US-backed peace process. But of course, there actually hasn't been a freeze on settlement building at all. Uh, basically, what has happened is that there has been increased building and extension of existing settlements. In that in this last 20-year period, the freeze has meant not supposedly building, quote-unquote, new settlements, but there has been expansion of the existing settlements, bringing them out to bigger and bigger sizings than they have. So supposedly what happened with this one is this is supposed to be the first settlement in new settlement in 25 years. When it was first announced the other day, it was supposedly that you know it would be set up uh, completely new, separate from any of the other settlements. Netanyahu has 
backpedaled a little bit in the last couple of days where um, he's saying now that, oh, look, this is only probably going to be a one-off for particularly it's to rehouse the illegal settlers from Amona, who are, which was a, an illegal Israeli settlement set up in 1995 on Palestinian-owned land. So the way the Israelis differ, they differ between supposedly state land, which has been seized by the Israeli government, and land that Palestinians are living on. A lot of the settlements, and particularly the newer settlements, are often built on Palestinian land, but it's very difficult for the Palestinians to prove it, or even if they can prove it, they have to go through years and years and years of legal struggle. It turns out within the Amona case, the so-called legal deeds that the Amona settlers claimed that they had to have legally built this uh, on this land or used this land, what well, turned out they were forged. So basically in 2014, the, one of the Israeli courts said that they had to be evacuated and uh, and earlier this year they started to pull the settlers out. Uh, uh, yeah, but the Israeli government had been dragging their feet for two and a half years on doing that. So Netanyahu is saying that this new settlement is to house the Amona ones uh, and it's going to be built in the middle of the occupied territories, particularly adjacent to another settlement called Shiloh. And basically, so this new settlement policy is is that it'll either be built on the outskirts of existing settlements or adjacent to it. The reason why, of course, um, Netanyahu is doing this is because he thinks he has the green light, or at least more of a green light, under Trump than he did under Obama. And because, you know, basically the Trump administration has said, look, we don't see settlements as a as a barrier to peace, but we also think that, you know, it may not help facilitate the peace process, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and you've just got to look at the Trump administration, the person that they have now put as the ambassador to Israel. He is a hardcore pro-settlement pro-settler uh, person. Uh, I, I was reading somewhere about him. They were saying that actually um, one of the Israeli uh, writers, sort of the for the, for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, who writes on um, Israeli defence and, and strategic issues and things like that, he said, you know, uh, by this guy's standards, most Israelis or even uh, most American Jews would be seen as traitors to the Zionist cause. This is this is how strong this guy's opinions are on and supporting settlements and, and things like that. So, uh, you know, we'll have to see how it uh, plays out in the next few months. I mean, uh, the Israeli settler movement is saying, you know, Netanyahu's being weak by saying, oh, we're just not, go- not going to go hell for leather and build wherever we can. But they see this as an opportunity to actually, you know, pursue extending settlement building compared to what they were able to do under uh, Obama. And as I said, even under Obama, even though there was technically supposedly a freeze, there was still settlement building going on. And of course, if you look at it another way, you build a, an illegal outpost, you're found out, and we'll give you a new home. Yeah, basically, I mean, even though they're illegal, uh, the wildcats, what usually called wildcat settlements, which are set up just, you know, with a group of five or six people, often, you know, they're, they're illegal under Israeli law, but basically the Israeli state try to ignore it and then of course they grow bigger and bigger and bigger and they've only evacuated a handful of these illegal settlements always caused huge trouble i mean amona is a prime case of this 
I mean, when when they first tried to start, uh, you know, when there was this, uh, the struggle to evacuate it, uh, you know, four or five years ago, uh, there was like thousands of settlers, would, not just the settlers in that colony, but thousands of settlers were going there to defend the colony, fighting against the Israeli police and things like that. And I mean, and if anybody spent any time in the occupied West Bank, they know that in general, the Israeli police and Israeli military will generally either side with the settlers or will not act to prevent them doing stuff. I mean, I've been in villages which have been attacked by Israeli settlers and it'll be the Palestinians who'll be arrested by the Israeli military or the police, not the the settlers who are doing the attacking. This is a situation that is not great and I think Netanyahu is going to try and push it as far as he can to extend the, um, the settlement building and so this is not a good situation but it also what it does reveal on you know on the other hand what it does reveal is that Israel has it pulls away any veil or any you know illusion that Israel was committed to an actual peace process I mean we all know that you know the peace process has been dead for years but the charade has continued and you know Israel keeps making lip service that they're supposedly committed to it well this shows very clearly that they're not committed to it and what they're committed to is annexing the West Bank as a whole and you know keeping a permanent occupation and just on that I should just mention recently there's just been a new poll that was done by one of the the Israeli-based think tanks which basically said that uh, according to their poll of Israeli Jewish people something like 76% of them support continued Israeli control over the West Bank. In other words, they support permanent occupation. And in regard to East Jerusalem, the figure is 79%. So, you know, this just shows that the idea of that, that, you know, this is not something, the occupation is not going to end. It is going to be, at the moment, it is going to be, it looks like it will be permanent and ongoing. And so this is why it is important that, you know, we stand with the Palestinian people and call for BDS and the boycott and sanctions and divestments against Israel because it is carrying out a belligerent, illegal military occupation and it has no intention of ending it and it has no intention of uh, allowing for the Palestinians to have self-determination. And that's activist Kim Woolamore, and a little bit later in the program we'll be hearing from Bishop George Browning about the denial of a visa to the Palestinian human rights defender, Basimi. On the program last week, Sean Cleary from the Edmund Rice Centre relayed two victories for the people of El Salvador relating to Oceana Gold, Australian mining company. The first, the company has again been directed to pay the $8 million ordered by the International Centre for Settlement of Investment Disputes of the World Bank and pay interest on the monies outstanding to the Government of El Salvador. The second, lawmakers in El Salvador voted overwhelmingly to prohibit all mining of gold and other metals, making the country the first in the world to impose a nationwide ban on metal mining. This week the focus is once again on Oceana Gold and their gold and copper mine in Didipio, 270 kilometres north of Manila in the Philippines, which has been under scrutiny for over a decade for human rights abuses and environmental degradation. 
I'm speaking once again to Sean Cleary from the Edmund Rice Centre. Sean, how far back do we need to go to see the beginnings of problems for the people of the Dipio and surrounding areas of this mine? Where exactly is it and what is the terrain? The Dipio mine is uh, a mine that was opened by Oceana Gold uh, less than 10 years ago. It's located in the Luzon island of the Philippines and in the Nueva Vizcaya province. So the mining area is about, in general, four hours drive north of Manila. This is an area where people are actually uh, had previously displaced from other uh, development projects and therefore moved to this area and were told they would be able to then sort of live their lives on from here. And uh, in fact, that's uh, for quite a number of people there. They're, uh, with the mining project opening up, they were forcibly displaced from their houses, their houses knocked down, other arrangements offered to them, but not really adequate ones. And what's really interesting in this, I guess, is that uh, the promises for development that are offered by, that are made, the promises made by transnational corporations like Oceana Gold, which maybe give some level of income to the overall economy of a nation, but that really create backward steps for the local people in these areas. So that's one of the consistent themes we're seeing about the extractive industries and I guess mining in particular. What does the mine look like? This mine is an open-cut mine, so it's a great big hole. Yes, and then alongside of the area where the ore is being removed from the earth, there's extensive tailings dams, uh, and that's where the ore is removed and then large amounts of water are used to uh, take the ore which is being crushed and turn it into a slurry. Uh, after that, that's when the cyanide, copious amounts of cyanide, are added to the slurry in order to separate the gold out so that the gold will fall to the bottom. What happens then is you're left with this uh, massive slurry that then has to go somewhere and it's put into tailings dams. Hopefully, uh, when you're building your tailings dams, hopefully there's no shortcuts being taken in regards to, to building the dams. And uh, you know that also if you're building a dam in an area which is uh, often like where gold is found on uh, subject to earthquakes, subject to cyclones like in the Philippines, then, of course, the worry is, well, what's going to happen if there is actually overflow from this, from uh, a torrential downpour? What's going to happen when an earthquake were to happen in this sort of area? It has the uh, construction of the tailings dam wall been strong enough? Have any shortcuts been taken? If whoever was constructing the tailings dam wall was offered a bit of money to uh, use lesser standards, then has that happened? What's been the revision? So... You know, these are the sorts of things where uh, Australian mining companies have, uh, I think, in Bulgaria and recently in Brazil, we've seen the involvement there where tailing dam walls have collapsed despite the promises of the mining company. So these are some of the issues confronted by people there, some of the risks proposed to the Philippines. And have there been leaks from those dams into their water supplies? Certainly, well, that, that's a disputed issue on the basis of contamination of the, the water supply. So, and I don't know whether it's directly from the dams or, or what's causing the contamination, but water tests, uh, as I understand it, of the river show unacceptable levels of pollutants associated with the mining. And that's been the basis for the decision of Gina Lopez, the uh, current secretary of the, of the Philippines Department for 
environment and natural resources to implement a six-month suspension on the DGPO mine. So this was part of a recent move by her where she uh, shut down 23 mines and where she suspended another five mines for six months, giving them six months to correct the problems. And so her department has identified that there has been contamination happening and therefore they've given uh, Oceana Gold six months to resolve those problems. But during those six months, the mine is to be suspended. And how many people are affected by environmental problems? One of the things that's of consideration through all of these mines is that the catch, water catchment basins upon in which the, the rivers where the mines are located uh, can be contaminated. And so it's not just the people in the immediate environment that are impacted by this, but it's also anyone who's reliant on the water supplies here. Uh, we also see contaminants not just being in water supplies, but also being airborne and that uh, some of the, the contaminants which end up the, that's produced by the, the tailings and by this process is uh, not just the use of cyanide and the, the release of cyanide and evaporation of cyanide into the air, which then uh, is, is, can be carried on dust into where people are living, but also other heavy metals. So when the ore is uh, crushed and the, the slurry is made, you're actually releasing arsenic as well and mercury from is, is these are normal byproducts that are being released from being safely stored underground in the earth that when the mining process occurs arsenic and mercury are then uh, being released from the crushed ore as well also you get high levels and, and this is one of the major concerns for rivers you get what's called acid leaching so that the uh, rock itself is very acidic and uh, is when it's being crushed open it's allowing acidic materials to then uh, if when they're hit by rain that uh, acidic nature can come from the, the rocks that's being crushed and pour into the, the local water stream. I'd imagine that fish eating fish would have been part of the people's diet before this mine that wouldn't be possible now? Well, and that's a nationwide issue in the Philippines as well that they're dealing with, and that's, you know, yes, you're right. It's the, the heavy metals, mercury particularly, that where that's being released into the whole biosystem of the, the nation, uh, so not just in the rivers but also in the, uh, the waters uh, surrounding the river mouths. There's also the, this level of contamination. And contamination of agricultural land as well as the rivers spread out? I don't have so much information on that, but that would be concern where people are uh, using pumping water from the the rivers or where they are actually, uh, as happens near the Didipio mine or downstream from there, quite amounts of uh, hand carrying of water to uh, vegetable fields to be able to, uh, with household gardens, to be able to water those gardens. There's, there's actually uh, you know, people carrying containers of water directly to their own household gardens. And not only that that contaminated water is going into the gardens, but it's also going into their hands, their faces. Sure, if they don't have access to any other water supply, which is the circumstance of many people relying on local rivers, then that certainly is a, an additional risk. And you, you, know, you just worry about what that means for the health of children. Have they ident- identified skin problems and respiratory problems from the, the dust and the, 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 just the general atmosphere in that area? I'm not familiar with the, the medical issues in that area so much. I know we've been one of our concerns in regards to just healthcare systems for 
communities like this is where we've seen transnational companies and, and specifically if you look at the, the YouTube videos of uh, promoted put out by Oceana Gold showing what wonderful um, corporate citizens they are. You, you see staff with Oceana Gold logo shirts sort of running clinics out in uh, nearby villages and I think one of the concerns here will rather than these kind of random clinics, why, if there's funding going into healthcare for locals, why is that not going into the coordinated approaches of the local Department of Health? Why are we having these kind of, what in Cold War times would have been called uh, civic military actions, uh, I guess it's here it's civic corporate actions, where uh, counterinsurgency type actions to win hearts and minds is being used. and. Uh, as I mentioned before, I think I find this quite obscene to be really exploiting the poverty of people by dangling trinkets in the sense of uh, not not helping to the services of the, the Ministry of Health in the Philippines to provide integrated services, ongoing services to people, but just having you know a doctor and a couple of nurses come in to a village and run a clinic and saying, look, aren't we good? We're the mining company. We're doing things to, help, to support your health. It's just, uh, it's fraudulent and it's exploiting the poverty of the people, I think. The Commission for Human Rights in the Philippines in 2011 found Oceana Gold had violated numerous human rights of peoples in the area, rights to residents, adequate housing, property rights, freedom of movement, security of person continuing. Is that improved at all? I don't know that we've seen any real improvements at all since then. I'm not aware of anything to suggest that things have improved. And even the sense of the contribution that a company like Oceana Gold will be making to the, the tax base of a nation so that they can afford social services is something which is undermined. When Oceana Gold first got the licence to uh, produce, uh, to go into production stage with the Didipio mine, they were able to obtain a five-year tax holiday. So that meant for the first five years production of the mine, of what I think at that stage they were predicting would be, I think it was over 15 years total production time for the amount of gold they had in this mine, they didn't have to pay any tax. Uh, and this is, is a, you know, I think it's alleged that this was a incentive for them to go to open the mine, although they were obviously very committed to it without the incentive, so I'm not sure why an incentive was given. We don't know whether, any, what would be the best way to describe it, I don't know, incentives were paid or whether any, uh, often I think that corporations can make payments to consultants to giving advice to them and uh, then whether or not those particular consultants might have a family member who are in a position within government that would allow them to then grant a tax holiday are the sorts of questions which I think, you know, we need transparency to, to be ensure, to be for, for a nation to be sure that this is happening. One of the things that adds to a bit of cynicism on my part in regard to this is that whereas Oceana Gold originally were predicting that, and I can't remember the exact number of years, whether the mine life would be 15 years or something like that, but then as soon as they opened, because they had the five-year tax holiday, the level of, of production of gold uh, was at a much increased rate to what they'd originally projected. So it seems like that they ramped up the level of production so that they'd be able to extract a lot more of the gold from the mine during their tax holiday, and therefore there would be less income subject to being taxed after the five-year tax holiday ended. 
I remember a number of years ago, one of the people from the DBO came to Australia. I'm not sure whether they were involved with your organisation or not, but um, he spoke about the human rights abuses and that the military and the police were often called in to force the people off the barricades of where they were trying to stop the mine. Are you aware of what's happening there in recent times? Well, certainly there's a, I guess, as much as we see that the uh, the current president of the Philippines is homicidal, I guess, in his attitude to dealing with the health issues of uh, drug abuse, drug dependency. So that's, you know, uh, on, on one hand we see that, but on, on the other hand at the same time we see that he's appointed an environment secretary, Gina Lopez, who's actually very, very concerned for the social justice situation of people in around mining projects. And so there's certainly been, I guess, a change in the way in which people in the communities around the mine perceive central government and that they now feel that they have a voice in the cabinet. They now have a voice within central government, so that certainly as far as the police or military's involvement might go, that there would be much more accountability and more optimism on behalf of local communities at the moment because of Gina Lopez. What, what's interesting, though, with her appointment is that she, it was only uh, late last year that she was appointed uh, after the election of President Duterte, and she is yet to be confirmed by the legislature in, in the, the Philippines. So normally you'd just have a series of hearings, confirmation hearings, and then the person would be approved or rejected, uh, usually approved, because there would be a wise appointment, you'd hope. Uh, but in fact, Secretary Lopez has now had two rounds uh, in two separate weeks of confirmation hearings, and each time the, the panel involved in that from the Congress has postponed or deferred uh, confirmation of her appointment as Secretary for the Environment and Natural Resources. So that's something really concerned. She's due to go back for another hearing around the 3rd of May. And uh, there certainly seems to be a lot of lobbying coming from the transnational mining corporations to have her not confirmed. And what we'd be looking at to see in the next few weeks, whether there's pushback from President Duterte, where he has so far, on a number of instances, said that uh, he has a great deal of confidence in her and supports her actions in the, the mine closures and the mine suspensions. But we're now waiting to see whether he will bring some of his social capital to bear on the, the legislature such that they would move ahead and confirm her appointment as Environment Secretary. It must have been a big surprise or a big shock in the Philippines to have someone come out and actually take on the miners. It's been great, really. It's, uh, and, you know, I was in Thailand in, in February and was able to be aware there of the concern, similar concerns, in fact, there was an Australian gold mine uh, in the middle of Thailand that was closed down in December. And that as well is out of environmental concerns because of the health impacts on local people, which comes from gold mines in, in these sorts of circumstances, especially in places where they're densely populated population in a local area. So, you know, that's the sort of encouraging thing that you add that uh, sort of closure in in Thailand. You add on El Salvador now. Uh, you know, two weeks ago, implementing the national nationwide ban on metals mining, and then we see these uh, this fabulous work that Secretary Lopez is doing in the Philippines. So I think that uh, whatever from here we can do to encourage and support her work, 
and encourage greater accountability of transnational corporations, then that would be really important uh, for us to be able to do that too. There were calls for Australian mining companies operating overseas to operate under the same laws as here in Australia a couple of years ago. Nothing came of that? I don't know that anything has happened too much in Australia. There is an accountability process and uh, I, I think actually in May... Australia's review under the, and I need to get this right, Convention on Economic, Social and Political Rights, that uh, there are elements of, of that convention in which Australian government is held to account for the actions of Australian-based companies outside of Australia. Uh, so the extraterrestrial is the way in which they uh, describe it. Oh, sorry, extraterritorial. <laughs> So within that, uh, that's a positive move forward. The other element that the Human Rights Council of the United Nations in 2014 established an intergovernmental working group, which was given the mandate, very specific mandate, of working towards a binding instrument. And when they say instrument, they're talking about legal instrument. So either a treaty or a convention or a covenant. So that's a binding instrument within human rights law to regulate, and that, that I was surprised too that you used that strong word, regulate the activities of transnational corporations. So that's one of the most exciting things. They've already had the Intergovernmental Working Group on, on this, has had two meetings so far, and the third meeting is coming up in Geneva in October this year. So that will be fabulous if we can, as a global community, as, as you know, we're looking at concerns about companies like Google and Apple and others are not paying tax uh, and use, being able to use international systems to not pay tax, as we're also, uh, even the Turnbull government has supported the moves from, has committed itself to support the moves from Europe to make sure that we have uh, transparency as far as ownership of companies. You know, we saw in Panama, the, the Panama Papers, the Fonseca legal company with all the shell companies named in that. So as a, coming out of that, we've seen the Turnbull government commit itself that, yes, we will be able to have public registers of uh, what they term the beneficial owners of companies. So if a company is listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, then we'd be able to go and find out who are the, the real owners, not just see that the owners of some shell company in the Cayman Islands or Panama, but to see who's actually benefit, who's the people behind those shell companies, who are those who are benefiting from these, who are the beneficial owners of that. So, you know, these different elements do actually provide a fair bit of hope for establishing a, a global regime in which transnational corporations are more accountable to the communities which they have as their customers. And, of course, looking at the past, when you're talking about El Salvador and Philippines and probably PNG and Thailand and all those countries, the, the governments make very little money out of this or none, and the people are the ones that suffer. The claims of the benefits of this always seem to be vastly exaggerated and a number of economic studies have actually uh, now uh, more and more revealing this. I, I was surprised to hear how strongly in visits the year before last to Guatemala, uh, I was travelling there with Bishop Hilton Deacon uh, from Melbourne, Catholic bishop from uh, who's, who's now retired but very active still in these topics. And we were hosted in Guatemala by the Guatemalan Bishops' Conference. And I was surprised by how vehement and strong uh, we visited mining projects in three different areas in Guatemala, that those bishops are saying, you know, 
there is zero benefit, zero net benefit of mines in a country like Guatemala for local people, for local communities, and even for the nation. So they're also interested in moving towards the ban because they can see that, you know, not only do, do the sums not add up when you look at the damage done as far as the economy goes and, you know, weigh the damage against whatever economic input there might be, but also the conflict which is generated by the mining projects and the number of lives lost in that conflict as well, which, the, you know, often the mining companies say, oh, we're not responsible for that. But, you know, often they're the ones who are fueling the, the local issues in volatile societies, uh, often post-conflict societies, fueling the, the divisions, choosing sides, supporting one side in local context, and and, you know, it's the local people whose lives are being lost. It's the local families and, and children who are being uh, children who are being left orphaned by the, the violence associated with mining conflict. Moving back to the Philippines, how would you judge the fight back by the miners? I know that Oceana Gold has threatened to take legal action against this suspension. In her media conference when she announced the, the closures and suspensions. Secretary Lopez certainly made clear that they, the corporations did have a right of appeal, and, but that appeal is to the office of the president. And so far, the president has said that he completely does endorse her. Now, you know, as much as I, I think President Duterte, many would class as a sociopath, it would be he's also been making claims to re-establish the sovereignty of the Philippines. And Within that, certainly speaking against uh, the colonization and the neo-colonization or the ongoing colonization, which the Philippines has, has lived for many, and still lives today. And so it would be interesting to see what position he would take in regard to uh, foreign corporations trying to use ISDS, these investor state dispute settlement provisions of free trade agreements, use those against the Philippines and whether it might precipitate the Philippines withdrawing from the legal instruments which would make them accountable to these sorts of structures that undermine, which, which are so often tied up with free trade agreements and investment agreements, that undermine national sovereignty. And just the number of large mines by multinationals in the Philippines, so talking something about 30 they were suspended or were under threat of suspension. And that's probably just a, a sample of how many foreign mines have been opened in the Philippines. Yes, the, the numbers I was aware of, as far as what Secretary Lopez had announced, I think was 23 to be closed and, and five to be suspended and one other still under negotiation uh, as far as whether it would be suspended or not. So those are the, the numbers which have been uh, so far publicly announced. So we have to wait, do we, till May to find out whether her position is secure? That's right, yep. Uh, I think around the 3rd of May there'd be a new session of confirmation hearings and I don't know the exact date in which she would uh, come up before the panel, but it would also be interesting before then to see what level of public support uh, President Duterte would call in re specifically in regards to the confirmation hearing support that he might call for the, the Congress to give to uh, Secretary Lopez. And we'll be watching that one. That was Sean Cleary from the Edmund Rice Centre in Brisbane.
You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. It's um, coming up to 5 o'clock. You could be listening on 8.55am. You could be doing digital 3CR. You could have your computer open at 3cr.org.au and be streaming. And there's another one that I never get right, but you could also podcast and that shows you there on the homepage of 3CR how to go about all those wonderful things to continue listening to 3CR. That's 3cr.org.au. We want to hear from you. Our station is all about serving the community and we want to know your thoughts, comments and ideas to help shape our future. We're currently asking listeners to take part in a short online survey that will help us get to know you better and understand what you want from your local radio service. The results of this survey will assist us in continuing to be the best possible station we can be in service of our valued community. To have your voice heard, head to our website and fill out the survey. Marxism 2017, Australia's biggest left-wing conference. International guests, over 100 sessions. Easter weekend, April 13th to 16th. Victorian College of the Arts. Special guest speakers from the front line against Trump. Black Lives Matter activists Hayley Pesson and Kuri Peterson-Smith. Palestinian freedom fighter Besson Kamini. On the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, Marxism 2017. Radical Wheels, film festival, art exhibitions, book launches and other cultural events. Marxism 2017, Easter weekend, April 13th to 16th, Victorian College of the Arts. Visit marxismconference.org to secure your tickets. Marxism 2017, a 3CR supporter. Last week, activist Kim Bullimore urged listeners to protest at the denial of a visa for Palestinian human rights defender Basim Tamini to visit Australia. The visa was issued late last week, but a day later was withdrawn. Groups and individuals around Australia are incensed at the blatant double standards of the Australian government. While denying a human rights activist from speaking in Australia, they issue visas to people such as Gert Fiddlers, who regularly incites hatred against Muslims, and Ayan Hershey Ali, who calls for reformation of Islam, and a red carpet for a man who should be facing charges of war crimes at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. One of those groups is the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, whose president is former Bishop of the Diocese of Canberra and Goulburn in the Anglican Church of Australia, George Browning. George, tell us about the so-called crimes that Bassam Tamini is guilty of and therefore not a person who should be allowed into Australia. From the point of view of Australians, he's not guilty of anything because he's not guilty of a crime that would be considered a crime in Australia. What he's guilty of is protesting the summary removal of his own rights as a, as a Palestinian in his own country. In other words, he was born in the West Bank. He was actually born, he was a little baby at the time of the 1967 war. And his village of Nabi Salah has experienced violence from the settlers in, to the extent that their well has been confiscated and houses have been knocked down and, and olive orchards have been 
also confiscated and removed, and he has protested this aggressive confiscation of his land and that of the Palestinians, and as a result of that, he has been a prisoner of conscience, named so by Amnesty International, and he's been in prison several times. In fact, he's, he has experienced such violence in prison that he required at one stage to have an operation uh, on his head because he had a, a clot uh, on his brain which had been caused by a beating in the jail. So he's not guilty in the way that we would understand in Australia, uh, where we have freedom of speech and we are able to protest wrongs which we consider to have been perpetrated against us. But in Palestine, that is not possible, and for those reasons, he's been in jail. And, of course, all his protests and the protests of the people of the village have been non-violent. Absolutely. He is a, is a sort of a disciple of, or he, he honours Mahatma Gandhi's principle of non-violent resistance. And uh, where there may be some blurring of, of boundaries is in terms of stone-throwing. He's not been involved in stone-throwing himself, but in his village... There has been stone throwing, which is quite understandable. People are so frustrated. But uh, he has not tried to stop the stone throwing. And uh, indeed, I, d I can't imagine anybody anywhere in the world, including all Australians, who in similar circumstance would not be wanting to protest such uh, violation of human rights as they are experiencing there. As you've said, he suffered from torture and beatings in jail and being jailed. He's lost one of his brothers to violence by the Israelis too, hasn't he? He, he has, yes. So uh, there has been suffering upon suffering heaped on him and his family, and uh, a third of his villagers have been in jail. Men, women and children have been in jail, which is the Israeli way of dealing with this issue. They, um, rather than actually facing the humanitarian crisis that they have created and the human rights violations which they are perpetrating... Rather than dealing with those, they, they try to um, silence the people who protest, and that's what's been happening. And it just shows, once again, the double standards of the Australian governments, not just this government, when dealing with Palestine. Well, it does, Jan, and, and it makes a, a mockery of, of we claim to be a, um, a civilised country, we claim, to be, uh, we claim to have a basis in, in morality and ethics, but it, when it suits us, we just totally ignore the suffering of other people, and I find the unquestioning support of Israel, and particularly the Netanyahu government by our own government, to be inexplicable and, and unforgivable, really, because for reasons which... I think are solely political, then they're nothing to do with a trade or we we have much bigger trading partners like Indonesia nearby. But for reasons that are political here in Australia, we are so reluctant to uh, make any comment of criticism of the Israeli government. And as you know, when um, United Nations Security Council in December last year moved to resolution, and uh, America abstained, uh, um, condemning the building of settlements, the Australian government came out and said, had they been a member of the Security Council at that time, they would not have allowed that motion to go through, or they would have voted against it. And that would put us, really, as the only country in the world taking that position, which is extraordinary. Well, Bassam was granted a visa, and then a day later they took it back. And the reason I was given was that the Australian government contacted the Israeli police to get a police check on him. What sort of a police check is he going to get? 
Well, they, they basically said that if he came, some people in Australia would be upset by his presence here and therefore they, they considered that to be something they didn't want to occur. Well, when Netanyahu came here, there were a lot of people who were upset. Why was he allowed to come? It, they, they gave no adequate reason as to why the visa had been uh, denied. And why were Kurt Fielders allowed to come? Well, indeed. Why, why was he allowed to come? And um, presumably the president of uh, Philippines might come at some stage. And uh, why would he be allowed to come? What can be done at this late stage? Well, a number of groups are protesting this uh, discriminatory action by the Australian government, and I, I suppose particularly by Minister Peter Dutton. And uh, he needs to he needs to give some explanation as to as to why this has happened. The the explanation given is just not credible, and uh, he needs to explain why uh, the Palestinians are being treated in this manner, and particularly. If we are going to deny entry to somebody who is involved in non-violent resistance to oppression, then it's logical to think that we're pushing those people into violent resistance, and that's the last thing that we need. And so uh, I just cannot understand how the government, and Peter Dutton in particular, can justify the action that they've taken. And while a human rights defender is persecuted in his own country more and more of that land is being swallowed up by illegal settlements. Well, it is, and uh, as many of your listeners probably know, the, uh, the Netanyahu government has boldly declared it is building another entirely new settlement. It Mostly when it um, builds new houses, it, it, it's the uh, extension of already existing settlements, but now they have announced that they're building an entirely new settlement in contravention of the... Uh, a resolution of the United Nations. And there's been no protest, as far as I can hear, from Australia. There has been from the European powers and uh, from, understandably, from Arab countries across the world, but Germany, Britain, France, they've all made their position quite clear on this matter. Australia has not, and uh, it is really quite quite deplorable. Um, if your listeners could actually visualise a map of Palestine, the area available to the five million Arabs is decreasing all the time. And of the original Palestine, the 67 borders, which Palestinians have agreed to, is only 22% of the original Palestine. And uh, uh, Israel occupies 78% of the original Palestine. And the Palestinians were prepared to settle on that. But of the 22%, gradually more and more of that is being taken. And it isn't simply the area geographically taken by the settlements themselves, it is what is also isolated in, in infrastructure. So the roads that do the connecting are no-go no -go areas for, Palestine, for Palestinians. And uh, the whole of the Galilee uh, along the Jordan Valley is more or less being depopulated of Arabs by um, the Israeli government on, in inverted commas, on security grounds, which is really quite nonsense. Israel is a nuclear power, has been since the 1960s or at least the 70s. There's no, there is no real threat by the Palestinians. The threat to Israel, frankly, is its own action, that which incites reaction. And if they were able to deal more justly with their neighbours, with the Palestinians, then threat to them would decrease. And, of course, the treatment of Arabs who live within the state of Israel as second or even third-class citizens. Well, that, that is also true. And um, 
the, the Australian government and the American government put forward the view that uh, Israel is the only democratic country in the Middle East. Well, it isn't democratic in the way we understand dem uh, democracy. Um, the Arab population have at least 40 uh, regulations which uh, reduce their rights compared with Israeli citizens, and uh, those include their movement. If they want to travel, they can't get... They can't, there's no such thing as an Israeli passport for them. They can't uh, purchase land in exactly the free way that Israelis can purchase land. Uh, their opportunity for education is greatly reduced. So, for example, an Arab who lives in Jerusalem cannot go to the University of Bethlehem, for example, to study medicine or, or nursing or whatever they might want to study there. But these restrictions make uh, an Arab citizen make their rights entirely different to those of an Israeli, and that needs to be understood if we want to claim Israel is a democratic country. And that was Bishop George Browning, who's the president of the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, and he hails from around the, the Canberra area. Lovely place, I think it's Batemans Bay, around that way, on the sea, near the sea, off down off the mountains there. That's all for that right now, but we're having um, a conference in a moment, the conference... Uh, for 1916-1917, the anti-conscription campaign in Brunswick and Coburg, they're having a big conference in May, so we'll hear about that in just a moment. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The Clock Tower Centre presents a definitive story from our neglected Indigenous history with Ubidjeri Theatre Company's production of Corrandirk. Based on the true story of the men and women of Corrandirk Aboriginal Reserve who went head-to-head -head with the Aboriginal Protection Board. This special production brings these voices from the past to life. Performing Wednesday the 24th of May at 8pm. Bookings and more information at clocktowercentre.com.au or call 92439191. That's 92439191. A 3CR supporter. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. The next event for the Brunswick-Coburg anti-conscription campaign will be a conference on the 20th of May titled The 
1916 and 17 anti-conscription campaigns, impacts and legacies. Today I'm speaking with a spokesperson for the group, Michael Hamill-Green, Emeritus Professor at Victoria University. Michael, before we focus on what will be one of your main events for the remainder of this year, could you recap on the events which the group were involved in during the past year and a quarter? Yes, well, we've had a series of um, public uh, meetings and and public uh, presentations on various aspects of the 1916-17 conscription referendum and the tremendous movement of opposition to that, the introduction of conscription and successful opposition in those two referendums. So um, we've we've had speakers on particular aspects, Val Noon on the Irish Catholic uh, opposition, and um, I've spoken, and uh, various others, Peter Love on the role of Labour Party figures. So we've had a series of lectures um, in Brunswick, but we've also had a, a play, 1916, um, that um, portrayed the uh, key suffragette, Adela Pankhurst, and uh, um, others uh, very vividly portrayed the kind of um, issues that they were confronting, and, and particularly in the atmosphere, you know, the, the kind of jingoistic atmosphere at the time, and uh, the, the enormous influence of uh, women in, in the uh, anti-war movement at that time. We've also had poster campaigns using some of the original posters from the 1916-17 anti-conscription campaigns, you know, posting them up around Brunswick. Now, Brunswick was actually you know, one of the key centres, not just within Melbourne, but nationally. Um, key people like John Curtin and uh, Frank Anstey and uh, various others uh, you know, were living in, in um, Brunswick. Anstey was uh, representing the area and, and the, the whole uh, union campaign that uh, was led by John Curtin, um, nationally, that is. So uh, having these posters around Brunswick was also a reminder of the, the actual role that uh, Brunswick was playing at that time. The meetings, key meetings uh, were held at the St Ambrose Hall in Dawson Street, Brunswick. So on, on top of that, we've had walking tours. We've uh, visit, you know, shown people around the places where John Curtin, Frank Anstey and various others lived in, in Brunswick and where uh, Archbishop Cardinal Mannix... Um, made his famous speech you know, calling the, the uh, First World War a sordid trade war. I mean, that was made in uh, St Ambrose uh, School in, in Dawson Street, Brunswick, when it first opened in the beginning of 1917. And that's not all. We, I mean, we have a conference coming up on May the uh, 20th, on a Saturday, May the 20th, in, in Brunswick, uh, in the Sackville Street, Brunswick, just behind St Ambrose Church. And, and just a, some further activities you know, coming up as well, uh, a reenactment of the, the women's demonstration and choir outside Pentridge uh, in support of uh, Adela Pankhurst when she was in jail in uh, late uh, 1917, early 1918. And, of course, a number of those activists went to Pentridge, didn't they? Not because they wanted to. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, uh, in, in the case of Adela Pankhurst, uh, she um, was part of the Women's Peace Army. She'd led demonstrations and she was put in, in, in Pentridge um, for um, allegedly inciting... Um, violence and uh, under the, the military um, censorship laws, all that sort of thing. So she, she was put in jail, but there are others too um, who, who were put in jail at the time, including uh, conscientious objectors and including uh, John Curzon, who of course became our Prime Minister in the Second World War. He he was put in jail for exactly the same reasons myself during the Vietnam War, refusing to comply with the, the call-up. <laughs> and I'd imagine they weren't treated very well. 
No, well, I mean, the, the conditions were very primitive. I mean, Dada Pankhurst had already been in jail as a suffragette in England, even on, you know, sort of uh, uh, hunger strikes in England. And she found the, the treatment of women prisoners in Pentridge at the time, because Pentridge was actually the main women's prison for something like 50-odd years. And uh, she, she was uh, aghast at the treatment of, of fellow prisoners in Pentridge, as was John Curtin in, in the men's uh, part of the prison, Yeah. There were fairly heavy penalties, weren't there, for opposing the war? Yes, well, there would have been even more if the conscription referenda hadn't um, <laughs> hadn't been lost. Uh, you, know, you know, the fact that they were defeated meant that conscription wasn't introduced um, uh, like it was in England or New Zealand. In England, you know, something like 69 conscience objectors actually died in, in prisons. Uh, some were even executed. Uh, so the, 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 the treatment here... Uh, a lot of the worst treatment was avoided, but you know, it would have happened had not the, those referenda been been successfully defeated. You mentioned the conference there. What will it entail? The conference uh, will be an all-day conference starting at uh, the, um, the site work in Sackville Street, Brunswick. And it'll start at 9 and finish about 4.30, and we'll be having some of the key historians uh, across Australia who, who've been following the, the issues during the First World War and also issues of uh, conscription in later periods. So it'll begin with um, looking at uh, an overview. Um, Barry Jones, the former science minister in the Labor government, and uh, uh, Murray Good, a professor from Macquarie University, will be you know, giving the background introductions. Then we'll be having uh, a number of um, experts on different aspects of the, the, the anti-conscription movement. Um, Stuart McIntyre from Melbourne University will be giving an overview, and uh, Peter Love will be looking at the uh, Labor Party and Anstey, Frank Anstey roles, and um, Carolyn Rusmus on looking at... Uh, the roles of Doris and Morris Blackburn, Morris Blackburn being, of course, the founder of the Morris Blackburn firm. Then uh, after lunch, we'll be having a, a further panel that's looking at the role of the women's movement and, and religious groups and pacifist and conscientious objector groups with uh, Kate Lang and Professor Joy Demusi from Melbourne University. We've got uh, Professor Bobby Oliver from Curtin University and Dal Noon talking about some of those areas. Then we've got a choir, the choir that's been commissioned to, um, with a new song about the period and that will be um, singing outside Pentridge uh, uh, in the reenactment of the uh, uh, Della Pankhurst imprisonment. So that, that will perform then. And then later in the afternoon, we've got um, an overview of the impact of those First World War anti-conscription campaigns with uh, Dr. Ross McMullen. And then we move into more recent times. We've got a, a, a section on the Vietnam anti-conscription campaign, which has a lot of parallels with the First World War campaigns. Um, Dr. Anne-Marie Jordans will be we talking in that uh, session. And finally, uh, we're coming right up to the present in the conference. We're looking at war-making powers in Australia right now, which, of course, is a very topical issue as we um, confront the situation where Australia may well be dragged into further wars by Donald Trump. So we've got uh, Paul Barrett, who's a former Australian Defence Secretary, um, uh, speaking in, the, in that session. Um, on the need for any decisions to go to war to be put to Parliament. Australia is in a quite a, a unusual position that you know, we can go to war just on the say-so of a Prime Minister or his, a few of his um, immediate uh, Cabinet members um, without any proper discussion or deliberation by, by Parliament, let alone what happened in the First World War where issues about conscription were put uh, in a general referendum. We see that uh, final session as... Um, you know, linking into some of the same issues that uh, the 
anti-conscription, anti-war movement in the First World War, and then in the Vietnam War, same sort of issues that uh, we're confronting again right now. Looking at it from a personal level, as your role as a conscientious objector, what do you believe that that campaign in the 1916-17 would have had on you? Well, yes, um, I, I was inspired by reading about the anti-conscription movement in, in England, and you know, people like Bertrand Russell and various others were uh, conscientious objectors in that war. They suffered greatly as a result of that. But uh, you know, it led me into, of course, um, they, they formed what was called the Nurse Conscription Fellowship. So that was something that inspired us uh, in the Vietnam War. We formed the Draft Resistors Union, which was a, a similar group of, of those who are directly being called up and, and refusing to go on, on conscientious grounds. Well, I think the big lesson from that period that uh, uh, informed us again at the time of the Vietnam War was the need for various groups, no matter what your background, to, to actually come together and work together. You had women's groups, you had the um, pacifists, you had socialists, you had labour unions, trade unions, all working together. And that happened again during the Vietnam War period. And that, that's when, when that's uh, working together on, on a particular issue to stop war, stop conscription, I think uh, that's when we can actually achieve success. And we did achieve success in the end on, on Vietnam. Absolutely. On the Vietnam War, stopping, you know, stopping the, the war. Yeah. And I'd imagine seats will be limited for this uh, conference uh, in, in, in Brunswick you're talking about? Yes. Uh, yes, we're expecting at least 100 people, but uh, you know, some people might not come for the whole day, but uh, I, I would encourage uh, people to, to register. You can register by going to trybooking.com, and uh, I think it's, you just type in uh, trybooking, all one word, dot com and slash PGRV, or if you forget that, you can just go to trybooking and, uh, and search for um, conference on... Uh, commemoration of conscription, First World War. Yeah. Okay, Michael, just before I let you go, um, an event about a month earlier than that is the Anzac Eve event, which the Medical Association for the Prevention of War hold every Anzac Eve. You're a part of it this year. Yes, I am. It's, um, it's, being, um, it's featuring Rod Quantock, of course, who everyone knows, and uh, um, is, is, well, I suppose in the, in the same mould as John Clark, who, who sadly has just died, so, you know, someone who, who can both satirise but also take seriously the, the issues that are confronting us. So um, he'll, he'll be there, and uh, uh, Emily Hayes and her Brunswick Rogues, and the poet um, uh, Alice Marika Ogeza will be there. So it, it'll be quite a diverse presentation, but all around the theme of, you know, why do we go to war, the real story of why we go to war. And, you know, from my point of view, I'll be pointing out some of the things I've, I've just been talking about. The Anzac uh, legend is looking mainly at the, the undoubted courage of our soldiers and diggers at the time, but I think we also need to be remembering the kind of concern people had about the war and the actual successful opposition to sending people to that war as people became more and more disillusioned and, and realised how pointless that war was. And, uh, and I'll be also you know, referring to the Vietnam War period where, where I was a, a member of the active anti-war anti-conscription movement then. And, so, and also I've tried to be bringing it up to date as well in the, the current situation. Yep. And of course Rod Quantock's been part of the anti-conscription movement for the last couple of years, taking the role of Archbishop yes. managed a couple of times now. Yes, yes, I should have mentioned that, of course, on, on all of the, the activities that we were conducting. We had a, a reenactment of Daniel Mannix's speech, the, the sordid, where he called the First World War a sordid trade war. So Rod Quantock did an amazing job reenacting that speech and you know, um, giving a sense of uh, uh, the 
for the audience what it was like to be there at the time and to, to take part in, in that kind of action. So, um, yes, uh, he's been uh, remarkably uh, effective in, in portraying some of those issues, yes, yes. Finally, Michael, would you like to say a few words about the passing of John? Yes, it's, it's absolutely tragic and, you know, so relatively young at 68. Uh, I mean, he was one of the few to so effectively satirise the, the, the conservative governments and, and governments, non-progressive governments, um, uh, in such a, a, a devastating way. And, and to, um, I mean, it, it's equivalent, in, I, I suppose, in Australia of Yes Minister in, in, in England, but he, he had a more, more of a political edge to, to his analysis. Um, and uh, really, you know, punctured all the, the official rhetoric about your know, reasons for going to war, reasons for you know um, supporting um, sort of uh, economic policies that, that disadvantages uh, low-income groups. All those sort of things will be missing him very much uh, in terms of uh, that kind of critique and analysis that, that was a, a constant undercurrent of, of his um, satire, and particularly the, the Clark Dawes show <laughs> on a weekly basis, which actually captured the week-to-week the, the -week issues. Yeah. He'll be greatly missed, especially around Smith Street. And that was Michael Hamill-Green from the group, the Brunswick-Coburg Anti-Conscription Commemoration Campaign. And I'll just reiterate those two events, the one on the 24th of April, which is at the Bella Union Bar at Trades Hall. The theme is, why do we go to war? And I believe that you need to get onto the Bella Union webpage to book for that event. And the other one, which Michael's been talking about, is the conference, 1916-1917 conference in Brunswick. And... You can book that one. It's pretty easy. I did it today. You just um, queue in trybooking.com and where it says search, you put in something like conference 20, 20th of May, 1916, 1917 and it's pretty easy after that. So that's the 20th of May for the conference and for the other event, Bella Union Bar is the 24th of April and that's a an event put on each year by the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. We want to hear from you. Our station is all about serving the community and we want to know your thoughts, comments and ideas to help shape our future. We're currently asking listeners to take part in a short online survey that will help us get to know you better and understand what you want from your local radio service. The results of this survey will assist us in continuing to be the best possible station we can be in service of our valued community. To have your voice heard, head to our website and fill out the survey. Hey, are you wearing the latest 3CR t-shirt this summer? We have a limited number of 40th birthday t-shirts for sale. Designed by local artist Emily Floyd, these awesome Radical Radio t-shirts are available from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. Or you can shop online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. For just $20 or $15 for kids' sizes, you can look great and help 3CR celebrate 40 years of Radical Radio.
like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. A deadly gas attack took place in northwestern Syria's Idlib province last Tuesday. The US and its allies and, of course, the media were quick to blame the Syrian government despite a significant lack of proof. And it's not the first time, 2013, 14, 15, 16, and now today. I'm speaking with Dr Tim Anderson, Senior Lecturer in Political Economy at the Sydney University. Tim, what does this attack tell you? It tells us that people are being killed probably by some sort of chemicals, probably some sort of chlorine compound in the areas that the Al-Qaeda groups have been holding in Idlib. All the information that's come out of there has been obviously controlled by those same Al-Qaeda groups. And the White Helmets, their involvement? Yeah, the White Helmets have always been auxiliaries to the Al-Qaeda groups. Um, That's very clear. As soon as Aleppo was cleared of the Al-Qaeda groups, that was the end of any White Helmet activity there. And all of the residents that came out of East Aleppo were saying that they never helped them, they were there to help the armed groups. What about the photos of people picking up babies and young children and with their bare hands and the different different aspects of the photos that we've seen in the the initial photos, not so much the photos we're seeing now, but the initial photos we saw. Yeah, the the story changed. I mean at first I think they mentioned they did say something about chlorine attack and then they shifted around to sarin. But people have pointed out that sarin is toxic through the skin, so you don't pick up people without gloves. And indeed, the, the you know the protective maybe maybe they'll say they couldn't have the full protective gear. But even just the simple thing of gloves, you know, touching people's skin if they were affected by a nerve agent like that. And also, people said that they could smell the gas, so it's much more likely that it was some sort of homemade chlorine compound. And indeed, we've seen images of those exact chemicals found in arms caches that al-Qaeda left behind in East Aleppo. They've been published online, you know, so it's more than likely that it was some, some homebrew. Now, how that was used, or, or whether, as the Russians say, that an, a Syrian airstrike, because indeed the Syrian army was bombing the al-Qaeda groups in that area at that time, whether the Syrian airstrike hit their chemical dump and blew it up and killed people, or whether, as I suspect, the many, many hostages that they have were murdered for the purpose of this stunt. That's not entirely clear. That's a pretty damning accusation. Yes, because I've done it before. And these are people who murder people in public constantly. And we know that they kidnapped 250 people from two villages of northern Hama, Majdal and Katab, just a few days before, in about in 22nd of March, something like that. The Syrian army took back that village about a week later but they took 250 people away. Now, there's been a number of incidents in the the Syrian war where those groups have killed the men in communities that they feel didn't support them and kidnapped the women and children. 
They did it in Baluta in Latakia. They've done it in Accra. They did it in a number of places. They've done it, and most recently, and they did it in Aleppo too. But most recently, in those northern Hama villages, um, there's reports from Syria that they they kidnapped another 250 people. So it's certainly a possibility because they're ruthless people who murder people in public and boast about it. So to murder children, to murder people in pursuit of the political gain, which they got, in fact, they got outside uh, air cover, uh, at least a token attack from the Trump administration. That was exactly what they were aiming for. And it's emboldened them, it's lifted their morale, and they've claimed it again, they've claimed there's another chemical attack in countryside Damascus. So the al-Qaeda morale has been really lifted by this, uh, this Trump missile attack. Let's go back a bit and look at previous gas attacks, and it was always the Syrian government who were blamed for it. What proof is there that it was the Syrian government? There isn't any. It's just the accusations of the al-Qaeda groups echoed by their Western sponsors, basically. In Uh, the previous times? The previous time. Well, the one that I investigated most thoroughly was the, the famous one in 2013, the attack in the eastern countryside of Damascus in East Ghouta. And in that case, the story was completely debunked by Western evidence. I mean, there was Syrian evidence too and Jordanian evidence and Turkish evidence, but there was very powerful evidence coming from the USA. So in other words, you know, people who weren't partisan to the Syrian government. You might recall that Seymour Hersh did a story on that uh, about the, the, the sarin attack in, in August 2013, where the information he got then came from US intelligence. The other damning thing was the MIT scientists, uh, Lloyd and Postol, that did um, telemetry studies of the missiles that, that were meant to have carried this substance, and they found that it was impossible that that missile had come from the closest military base around there because it was nine kilometres away. So there was very powerful... There's other evidence too, but there's a whole chapter in my book, uh, Chapter 9, in The Dirty War of Syria, that explains how false that accusation was and many other there were many other analyses of that incident too so the Idlib incident is very similar in lots of respects with one exception that there is indeed Syrian air force bombing of those very areas and if the Russian version is right then they had ready some incident to go because there was pre-planning of this the chemical weapons attack or the publicity for the chemical weapons attack too is it impossible for independent sources to get into places like this? Only if they're allied to the al-Qaeda groups, because these are people that... West, the Western journalists went in with them when all of the propaganda about them being moderate, secular rebels and so on was going on, and a number of them were killed and or used, pushed out into the front line because they could get a lot of publicity from a journalist being shot in the, in the crossfire or, or shot by the, by the Syrian army, for example. So they stopped going there. I mean, there's very few people except those that have the trust those armed groups that go in across the border illegally into into uh, Idlib now there are some by the way there's a woman Donatella I forget her full name from Amnesty International the lead investigator from Amnesty International who wrote the stories about Libya that turned out to be false she's apparently been 10 times across the, the Turkish border illegally to deal with those groups and that's really you know helps explain why all of the amnesty reports are so one-sided and Human Rights Watch, Al Jazeera, how are they getting on? Well, Al Jazeera gets reports directly from the armed groups because, you know, anyone's a reporter these days. They use their mobile phone, they show certain things, they show 
the white helmets also of course they set up their selfies of carrying children and so on and they send them through to Al Jazeera. Human Rights Watch I don't believe has anyone they rely just like MSF in the past did I'm not sure whether MSF has any presence in Egypt perhaps not but they had presence in Al-Qaeda areas in eastern countryside Damascus and in Aleppo but no one from their organization they just send the funds into these groups you know um, basically clinics and other sorts of facilities that the, the Al-Qaeda groups have set up and then all of their information comes back from those groups but neither Amnesty nor Human Rights Watch um, or MSF none of them have anyone in Syria. So there's, there's no proper investigation, there's no proof, yet a foreign country can say it's my right to bomb a sovereign country. Yes, and the media swings in behind Trump. I mean, the media that was critical of Trump are now saying he's on the right track. I think our own Attorney General George Brandis says that Trump has shown remarkable moral clarity, quote, moral clarity, unquote. You're, you're quite right. You know, there was no, there's been no investigation there's a lot of stories coming out of the US now in the same way as they did back in August 2013, casting doubt on the knowledge that the US had about this. Indeed, one of the interesting stories is that the CIA boss, a guy called Pompeo, is believed to have told Trump that he didn't believe that the Syrian government did it. And so Pompeo was excluded from the planning meeting that Trump held to, uh, to do the missile strikes. So it seems to me quite likely. And also remember, Trump is someone who was extremely sceptical about these these stories. And he, he made a big issue about the fake news on Syria that was happening under the previous administration. So it seems to me quite likely that Trump actually knew, believed, that this was a false flag. But he went ahead and did that attack anyway. What gain could the Syrian government have made by doing this? No, nothing at all. It's completely, there's no motive at all, as in most of the previous false flags, you know. And this one, like the previous false flags, happens at a time where there's international peace talks that are on the agenda and so on. So, you know, they're strategically timed incidents. Of course, it's also the Al-Qaeda groups looking for what possibilities they've got. There were many hundreds in the Al-Qaeda groups being killed by the Syrian Air Force and the Syrian Army. Indeed, the Syrian Army is taking back most of northern Hama now. It's on the point of going directly in ground forces into into Idlib, even though there's tens of thousands of Al Qaeda in Idlib at the moment. But the, on the on the land and in the air, there's a serious battle going on there. Hundreds on the Al Qaeda side are being lost. Many on the Syrian Army side are being lost too. So this incident was probably planned to coincide with an airstrike, then claiming that the um, the ordnance came from an airstrike. But really, the Syrian army doesn't have those sort of weapons anymore. The US um, verified it not so long ago. And the ordnance that goes in the particular planes that, that were bombing them is not set up to carry those, those sort of weapons anyway. And we have to remember and reiterate that the US and its allies are in the airspace and also on the ground in Syria illegally. That's true. They went in the northeastern part of, of Syria to support people who they say are their allies, uh, the Kurdish forces, YPG, and the SDF, which is about three-quarters Kurdish, with the idea or the option there of, or in the back of their minds, is the plan of partitioning Syria. And part of that idea, although it clashes with their Turkish allies, is to have a, a Kurdish sort of enclave there. 
so there's the, the US troops are on the other side of Syria, more or less. They're not. Um, there would be certainly advisers in Idlib now, US advisers, as there were in eastern Aleppo, but the troops themselves are over in the in the eastern desert. But the bombing continues. The US bombing yes. mean, of Raqqa, of some of the eastern parts. Yeah, yes, that's true. And there's a lot of reports about that too, and how poor their intelligence is because they don't really have, even though they've got troops over there, they don't really have good intelligence about those areas. Remember, they bombed Syrian troops. They claimed it was a mistake. The Syrians believe it was deliberate. They killed 80 Syrian troops in September 17th last year as those troops were fighting ISIS. So if their story is true, then their intelligence is very poor about who they're bombing, and that's why the stories of them killing civilians in Raqqa are probably have some substance to them. If what the Syrian says is true, that they deliberately attacked them to to help ISIS, that's even worse, isn't it? What is this so-called safe zone that the US keeps talking about? What are they planning there? It's another version of the idea of a, of a, a no-fly zone, which they used effectively to destroy Libya. That is to say, there's no such thing as a, as a friendly, a civilian-friendly free-fly zone. It requires aerial intervention against the Syrian, Iranian and Russian forces, uh, or it means, like the later humanitarian corridor idea, which sounds like a good idea and was indeed carried out by Syria and Russia to get people out of Aleppo. But if you're talking about a foreign power establishing a humanitarian corridor in Syria, it means they're carving out and taking over part of that territory. They're effectively invading and occupying illegally a sovereign country. This safe zone thing is another version of either either a free-fly zone, probably it would, if it were anything realistic, it would include air cover and the excising of a, of a certain territory in Syria. Maybe in Idlib's case, trying to excise a part of Idlib and making that a, an al-Qaeda-controlled zone. Indeed, the UN rep, de Mastura, suggested that late last year when there was all this publicity about the, um, the Syrian army trying to liberate Aleppo being a terrible crime. He suggested that they create some zone where all of those armed groups, basically under the, the dominance of Jabhat al-Nusra, which changed its name a few times, and its allied groups, that it be some enclave controlled by al-Qaeda. Well, of course, that wasn't acceptable to Syria, nor to their allies, and so Aleppo was liberated. But what they suggested for Aleppo, perhaps they're suggesting that for, for Idlib now, because there are indeed many tens of thousands of foreign jihadists and some Syrian jihadists in, in Idlib at the moment. How much of this, what's happening at the moment, is targeted at Russia? Yes, well, Russia is the strategic element there. Russia is the main reason, and the Soviet Union before it, why the US didn't move much earlier to destroy the government in Damascus, destroy the state in a way that they destroyed Libya. They thought that they could do it, but they were always worried about Russia. I mean, Russia strategically is seen by Washington as a big strategic enemy for a number of regions. One is to do with its presence in Syria in particular, but its role in the Middle East more generally. The other one is to do with Russia's relationship with Europe, because there's a fear in the US that if Russia establishes a more normal relationship with Europe, that will undermine US domination of Europe through NATO, for example. Uh, and that's why there's been such a lot of tension on Eastern Europe, on Poland and the Ukraine and so on, to try and drive a wedge between Russia and its commercial relationships and its oil and gas relationships with Europe, for example, 
to try and damage that. Now, there's quite a reaction in, in Europe against that. So in the bigger picture scheme of things, Russia and China are seen as the big, the big enemies. That's the way empires think. Empires are always much more... Con they're not really concerned about little people or little countries. They're looking at the big picture and they're looking at the, who their potential rivals are. And for them, the potential rivals are uh, Russia and China, but also a in, more independent Europe. And where does Turkey fit into their plans right at this moment? So Turkey's um, a big country, strategically in between the power blocks. It's part of NATO. It's not part of the European Union, to its frustration. The current regime in Turkey, a Muslim Brotherhood extremist regime that's trying to get dictatorial powers of, of, a, of a presidential system at the moment, is at odds with Europe in, in many respects. Uh, in NATO, but at odds with Europe. And traditionally, and you know, by geography, their their commerce with Russia is very important. So there's a there's an interesting game going on there between Russia and Turkey. Even though they're really almost almost at war in Syria, but still there's a pragmatic political game going on to rebuild that strategic and commercial relationship. Given that um, the current Turkish government is frustrated in relation to Europe and. Also, let's remember they blame the U.S. for the, the failed coup against Erdogan uh, some months ago or middle of, middle of last year. And amongst all this, people seem to have little concern about the the citizens of Syria. No, they use the, a lot of the Western argument, you know, about humanitarian intervention and the extreme lies that are told about the Syrian army and the Syrian government. They use those things, pretending a concern for. Syrian citizens, but in reality they don't listen to them. They never listen to Syrian citizens. The, all of the surveys and polls done in Syria during the war, including by uh, Turkey and Qatar and uh, NATO consultants, have showed that the president, Bashar al-Assad, is very popular, but they don't care about those sorts of things. They keep saying that he's a monster destroying his own people. They don't care what the Syrian people themselves say about those sorts of things because it's just a convenient tool there. Look at Aleppo. When all of the huge campaigns were being run, save Aleppo, Aleppo is burning, all these sorts of things. What happened when the Syrian army liberated Aleppo from the al-Qaeda groups? All of the Western media, almost all of them left. They went away. They didn't even want to interview the, all of the civilians that came out of East Aleppo. There was 100,000 that came out of East Aleppo. And uh, from a Western journalist's point of view, we were left with a few independents like Vanessa Bealey and Bolivian filmmaker Color or Tears and people like this. But all of those big Western chains didn't even want to talk to the, um, the 100,000 people that lived for a few years under al-Qaeda rule in East Aleppo. They just went away. And all of those campaigns disappeared. The White Helmets disappeared. Extreme concern, apparently, w you know, with the red Aleppo is burning signs, but then no interest at all to speak to the people who'd just freshly come out of that area. What impact is all this having on Iran? Well, Iran's a very close ally of Syria, even closer really than Russia because they share a lot of strategic interests in the Middle East and so they're deeply committed to defending Syria and Iran is also a big country as big as Turkey and, uh, and as important, um, perhaps more important in the Middle East. So they're deeply embedded in the, the defence of, of Syria there but also strategically in relation to the, um, the support, the material support, the armed support for Palestinian resistance. And that marks one difference with Russia, that Russia has a much different relationship with Israel. It's, it's done a, 
it's got an agreement with Israel that it doesn't want to attack Israel, it doesn't want Israel to get involved. There's a standoff there, a little bit similar to one that existed between the US and Russia. That's a little bit up in the air at the moment. But in the case of Iran, uh, it's a different story. Israel hates Iran because it's the biggest power in the region that's arming the Palestinian resistance. And that axis of resistance, you know, Hezbollah, Syria, Iran, and including to some degree Iraq and, and Yemen these days, is the big threat to Israel. And so Iran is really much more deeply embedded with, um, with Syria than, than even Russia, even though Russia, Russia is committed to the defense of Syria. But beyond that, things start to diverge. Going back to the airstrikes the other day, cruise missiles coming off the warship, they said they'd destroy the airfield. They wouldn't destroy the the base itself. There was one. There was one crater on the airfield. But um, first of all, from the Syrian side, they're saying that 40% of those missiles got through. A couple of them struck neighbouring villages, killing some people. But something close to 60% of those missiles were intercepted. Now, the US is not admitting that at the moment, and neither Syria nor Russia are saying they were, how they were intercepted, how, how come so many of them failed. On the Russian side, they're saying that this wasn't the S-400 system, the latest system, which is defending Russian interests there, but Hamidam Air Base, which the US didn't target, because they don't have a 40% failure rate with that state-of-the-art system. So it seems likely that the Syrians with an older generation system, intercepted a number of those missiles. Um, but the airbase itself, um, okay, they, a dozen people were killed, and it was a murderous attack. They killed, they destroyed some planes, but um, the same day, within 24 hours, planes were taking off from that airstrip, so they, they certainly didn't destroy the airstrip. No, if the bombs had fallen on the airstrip, it would take quite a long time. You don't just um, repair a runway not to carry heavy planes. Yes, and it's also worth noting that they, the US studiously avoided Hamainam Air Base on the coast, which is where all the Russian planes are. So I think it's pretty clear that for all of the hypocrisy and change of and unpredictability and, and change of language of the, the Trump regime, they're still quite concerned to uh, not get involved in the direct conflict with Russia. I think you can say the same thing about Putin too, that Putin doesn't want a direct conflict uh, despite the aggravation, despite the fact that um, they're really tearing up all their agreements, uh, the confliction agreements doing these things, um, neither Putin nor Trump want a direct conf- confrontation. Have you had contact with the people in Syria in the last week? Yeah, I was speaking to a friend last night. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty there, of course. There's a lot of black humour. Um, there are still mortars coming into Damascus from the US uh, armed, US and Saudi armed um, groups in countryside Damascus, they still have a base there. You notice one thing, that the Syrian army has not flattened the whole area. They haven't used a scorched earth policy in some of those areas, because even though most of the civilians have been evacuated from the areas still held by the Al-Qaeda groups, there are still a number of civilians there. So there's actually a much more careful approach going on from the Syrian side than there would be with a foreign invasion force like you recall when the US invaded Fallujah in, or flattened Fallujah twice in 2004. Um, that scorched earth idea that they used in Vietnam is still part of their tactics but the Syrian government, the Syrian army has never really done that in, in Syria in their own country. They've been much more careful about it. And we have to remember the, the bombing in Mosul just recently too. That's right, of course, the media treatment of Mosul and, and Aleppo are quite different, aren't they? 
Absolutely. Okay, thanks, Tim. Thanks for that, Jane. And that was Dr Tim Anderson, who's a member of Hands Off Syria. He's also a senior lecturer in the School of Political Economy at the University of Sydney. That's about all I have for today, but we'll go out with a community announcement and have a little bit of Kev comedy. So I'll say bye for now, and I'll be back next week at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.